Hello, everyone. Welcome back to our Dialogue podcast. I am here with uh, Kevin Flynn. My name is Jeffrey Chapman, and we're both clergy from St. Matthew's Anglican Church in the Glebe, and we're talking about Richard Hooker. We've been we've been uh, cruising through. Well, I don't know if I use the word cruising. <laughs> we've been we've been making progress. <laughs> let's say. <laughs> yeah, and we're we're now uh, we're now in the first in his first book, and and. Um, Last week we were he's, he started defining different laws and when he uses law uh, he doesn't mean like legal law mm-hmm. he's talking about laws as where we probably think about laws of nature just intentional ways that things um, how did how Kevin how would you describe Richard Hooker's description of laws well he yeah he's he's make he's going to be work, working on some distinctions between them but as you say. Um, you know, only God is infinite, and so everything else, mm-hmm. including human beings and angels and planets and stars and so forth, all have to um, are all, all are, are are limited, and therefore they they operate according to laws how material beings exist together. Um, so, uh, law is a way right. of talking Every- about, the, you know. Time within which the universe unfolds. Some things can happen; other things can't happen because of the laws. Right. All that has been created adheres to different forms of laws, yeah. different laws, different different ways that they're. Yeah, that's great. Okay. Right. And last, and last so, week we're saying even yeah. God Himself um, is limited, so to speak, simply through the fact of of, of creation. Um, God alone is infinite, but uh, but but there's. Um, God is true to God's own self and doesn't just will arbitrary things like some oriental despot seated yeah. far above it all. Well, and in, in a way, it's it's a sort of a sign of God's love and mercy mm-hmm. and grace that God chooses to obey the promises that God has made. Indeed. That, that, right? Yeah. yeah. Okay, but now we're moving into chapter 2. Um the law by which God has, from the beginning, determined to do all things, right? Uh, three. Or no, three. that's the one we did last week. Three, three, sorry, I'm sorry. The law by which natural agents work. Yeah, so we're moving into, we talked about God, now we're going to talk about the universe more specifically. And uh, right. so it's a real chain here, so we Everybody, let's follow the chain. Okay, here we go. All right. So the first part, he says, I am aware that most define the eternal law, not as that law which God eternally chooses to carry out in all his works, but instead as that which he has established for all his different creatures to obey, given the different conditions in which he has created them. Those who speak this way tend to define law only as the rule of working which a superior authority imposes on another, while we, on the other hand, are defining it much more broadly to include any kind of rule or standard by which an action is determined. The law, which they call the eternal law, when considered as it exists in the mind of God, has many different names when considered according to the different things it is applied to. When applied to natural agents, we call it the law of nature. When applied to the rule which angels behold and obey without swerving, we call it the heavenly or celestial law. When applied to the law which binds reasonable creatures in such a way that they can plainly perceive it, 
we call it the law of reason. When applied to that which binds them in such a way that only special revelation can make it known, we call it the divine law. When applied to those laws which are derived from both reason and revelation as prudential judgments, we call it human law. When things are as they should be, they are conformed to this second eternal law, and even those things which do not conform to it are still ordered by the first eternal law. Whatever good or evil is done under the sun, and whatever action conforms to or contradicts the law which God has imposed upon his creatures, will not God still work in it or upon it according to the law which he has chosen to keep forever, that is, the first eternal law? Once we distinguish between these two eternal laws, it is not difficult to understand how both take place in all things. Hmm. Well, I was just thinking it might be a good idea to read the footnote which the editors of this uh, translation uh, Right, because provided. it is very strange. Yeah. yeah. So he was working through the different kinds of laws, but he, he says that the uh, editors say, Hooker's distinction of a first and second eternal law is somewhat idiosyncratic and has occasioned debate among interpreters. Essentially, however, he, he seems here to be seeking to answer the question of why God sometimes permits things to happen through his eternal decrees, which are at odds with his revealed will for rightly ordered creatures. The former, Hooker calls the first eternal law, the second, the latter, the second eternal law. Although God's will is, in fact, one and consistent, from our viewpoint, part of it remains inscrutable, and it is to safeguard this inscrutability that Hooker distinguishes the two modes of the eternal law. The second we are given to participate in by reason, and this is what Hooker calls the law of reason, but that does not mean we have been given to know the full mind of God and why he does all that he does. Mm. So, I don't know whether that shed more light or... or <laughs> but let's just so, let's go back. He's got... So, eternal law... The celestial law, which angels obey, uh, the law which anybody, any human being, can perceive when the, uh, which he calls the law right. of reason, and then divine law, which is uh, only given by revelation. And then right. there's also a law that, uh, you know, you have to organize yourself some way in a society and so uh, you do your best to figure things out and you call that human law. So is he talking, when they're talking about the first and second eternal law, are they, is he sort of trying to solve, you know, essentially the problem of evil? I, is I that think what he's so. talking about? I, I think so, yeah. I, you know, you could, okay. Because you might say, um, you know, if you build your uh, village on the side of a volcano which blows up and uh, destroys the village, um, I mean, in some ways, this is this is the law that you know volcanoes have a tendency to blow up. Um, now, right. But it seems to run against God's eternal law that you know all things should work for flourishing. But um, mm -hmm. uh, this kind of natural evil, to us from our perspective, seems inscrutable or. Uh, I mean, well, yeah, I mean, it, it, he's even someone that would have survived plagues, right? Mm, I mean, this is mm. back, you know, I mean, and so, I mean, you think about COVID-19, like how, yeah, like it's, it's following on one hand, it's following a natural law. On the other hand, why, why would God why create something? Yeah, indeed. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the perennial yeah. issue. Why does a good God allow things to happen? So, you know, he does, I think from the, what the, um, 
the editors here said, you know, um, doesn't mean that we've been given to know the full mind of God. Like, why, why create a world in which there are viruses? Why create a world in which there are volcanoes? Why, you know, all of that. Um, and what I love about this is that the one thing that, it, you know, he would say, well, they're not bad things. They're simply things that are unscrutable. Yeah. You know, right? There's no, God doesn't allow, oh, that's very, uh, yeah, that, there's certainly no chaos. Yeah. There's certainly no chaos. There's just certain things that we cannot know. Yeah. Only one of us here is God, and it's not you folks. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's one solution. <laughs> so so, okay. so he, he's going to start to, um, to, to work out these particular laws in a little more detail. So let's launch on. Um, okay. Though we sometimes define the law of nature as the way that God has decided each created thing should act, we need to make a careful distinction. We most properly call natural agents those things which obey their laws necessarily, such as the heavens and the elements of the world, which have no choice in what they do, while we call rational beings with a free will voluntary agents, to set apart the two categories. In the same way, it will be helpful if we distinguish the law observed by the one from the law observed by the other, hence my category, the law of reason. Everyone recognizes the way that natural agents consistently keep one course, statute, and law. Yet man has never achieved, nor perhaps ever will, full understanding of their ways. Perhaps God has given us so much trouble in sounding these depths, so that when we see how much more the least object in the world has within it than the wisest may comprehend, we might better learn humility. <laughs> when Moses describes the work of creation, he attributes speech to God. Let there be light, let there be a firmament, let the waters under the firmament be gathered into one place, let the earth bring forth, let the, there be lights in the firmament of the heaven. Was Moses only intending to show the greatness of God's power by how easily he did such things without travel, pain, or labor? Surely Moses had another purpose. First, to teach that God was not bound by necessity to work, but that he acted freely intending and decreeing beforehand what outwardly proceeded from him. Second, to show that God instituted a natural law which his creatures would obey, which, according to the manner of laws, was established by solemn injunction. By commanding such things to be as they are and to keep their course as they do, he establishes the law of nature. What is the world's first creation and continued preservation but a manifestation of the eternal law of God in natural things? Just as, when once a law is published, it takes effect far and wide, and everyone accommodates themselves to it, so also in the natural course of this world. Ever since God proclaimed the edicts of his law concerning them, heaven and earth have listened to his voice and have labored to do his will. He made a decree for the rain, Job 28:26, and he placed the sand for the bound of the sea by a perpetual decree that it cannot pass, Jeremiah 5:22. If nature, even for a little while, were to leave off following her course and obeying her laws, if those principal and mother elements of the world from which everything in this lower world is made were to lose their qualities, if the heavenly arch above our heads were to loosen itself and dissolve, if the celestial spheres were to forget their usual motion and by irregular turnings to go wherever they happened to go, if the prince of the lights of heaven, who, like a giant, runs his unwearied course, were to stand and rest as if about to faint, if the moon were to wander from her beaten path, or the times and seasons of the years to blend themselves in a disordered and confused mixture, the winds to breathe out their last gasp, 
the clouds to yield no rain, the earth to be bereft of all heavenly gifts, the fruits of the earth to pine away like children at the breasts of a mother who could no longer feed them. If, I say, all this were to take place, what would become of man whom all these things serve? Do we not see plainly that the obedience of all things to the law of nature is the foundation of the world? Hmm. Cool. Do we not see plainly that the obedience of all things to the law of nature is the foundation of the world? So, um, that's his basic definition of the law of nature. Things have their limits. Things operate according to, uh, well, he would say, by God's design. Otherwise, uh, that last little piece, you know, try to imagine if they if they stopped, if, if, if the created order stopped obeying its laws, it would be catastrophe. He's sort of building almost like a, like a rhetorical castle, mm-hmm. right? Like this is just... Um, He's setting up these sort of foundational arguments, like clearly after sort of all this, he sort of goes through scripture, he goes through just how all the world, all the world is made. Yeah, we, it might be, sort of a, just in case anybody's back there wondering where Moses describes, describes the work of creation, attributing speech to God, you know, he's, he's working from the point of view that, you know, the first five books of the Bible, therefore including Genesis, are known as the books of Moses, so he would have yes. understood Moses to have been the author, which is not an assumption that is necessary to hold to enjoy Richard Hooker. <laughs> no, and it was a tradition. I mean, it's yeah. possible even Richard Hooker may not have entirely believed that from a scholarly point, no. but that was convention. Yeah, and yeah. In the same way that, you know, he the way that he's describing um, the world, I mean, this is this is a Shakespearean era, you know, I don't know... I don't quite know where Galileo fits in all this. Um, if he's sort of, again, if this is sort of convention to describe the sun and the moon arcing across the sky as spheres that yes. are orbiting the it's earth. Just celestial spheres, yeah. And, and, and Is that... You know, I mean, it's quite lovely, the, uh, you know, the prince of the lights of heaven, that's, that's the sun, who like a giant yes. runs his unwearied chorus. Well, that's like from Psalm 19. Is it Psalm 19? No, I can't remember where it's from. Um, yeah, but, but anyway, yeah, it's, it's, it's a, yeah, that's a, f- a figure. So all of this, as you say, this kind of Shakespearean rhetoric to make the point that we, looking at the universe, looking at the created order, can see that things operate according to what he calls laws. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's keep going as he sort of builds yeah. this here. Okay, so he goes on. Nonetheless, uh, nonetheless, the same thing often happens in nature as in art. If Phidias had unyielding and obstinate stone from which to carve, however great his skill may be, his work will lack the beauty which it might have had if it had been more pliant. Whoever strikes an instrument with skill may still make a very unpleasant sound if the string which he strikes is out of tune. Theophrastus speaks this way about the matter of natural things, saying that Many things are not able to receive the best and most perfect impression. The pagans who contemplated nature saw these defects in the natural world very often, but it was beyond their natural understanding to see that this was the result of God's curse due to man's sin, which he laid on creatures made for man, as God has revealed to his church in the gospel. But even though now and again such deviations happen in the course of nature, Nevertheless, natural agents so constantly obey the laws of nature 
that no one denies that whatever nature does is always, or for the most part, consistent and uniform. Hmm. Okay. Well, I might as well keep going. Sure. Right? I don't sure. think there's anything. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I don't entirely agree with... Anyways, his theology is... It's fine. We'll keep going. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> if we ask what keeps nature obedient to her own law, we must remember that higher eternal law which we have already described and... Since all other laws depend on it, from it we must draw whatever insight we need to resolve these questions. Not that we think, as others have, that nature acts of following certain blueprints or patterns which exist in God's mind, fixing your eye on them like sailors looking to the North Star and following it. Instead, we embrace the oracle of Hippocrates that, quote, each fulfills its allotted destiny both unto the greater and unto the last, unquote, and that... Quote, what men work they know not, and what they work not they think that they know, and what they see they do not understand. Unquote. Nonetheless, the works of nature are no less exact than if she were actually scrutinizing some shape or mirror always before her eyes. Indeed, she is so dexterous and skillful that no rational being can with all their intelligence do what she does without understanding her knowledge. Nature must have some director of infinite knowledge who guides her in all her ways. And who is the guide of nature but the God of nature in whom we live and move and have our being? Acts 17.28 Those things which nature is said to do are performed by divine skill with nature as their instrument. The artful workings of nature come not from any divine knowledge found in her, but only in her guide. Nice at the end that uh, uh, little figure of uh, God is a divine musician. Playing. Yeah, that's very very lovely. Yeah. I don't know if you can hear. There's a baby crying. It is my baby. <laughs> Who's operating according to his nature? His nature. Yeah, it's just. I mean, on one hand, you can you know he's. Yeah, I don't. Go. I don't know where to go with this yet. I just feel like he's setting things up. I, is there anything? It, I, I'm just curious, you know, um, where you're at on this so far. I, I think he's uh, affirming that uh, the creator depends upon its creator. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As opposed to... Um, Nature acts following certain blueprints or patterns. Um, that, that in some sense, um, nature self-directs, if I understand that correctly, which I'm not certain that mm-hmm. I do. Um, the artful workings of nature I mean, come I, not from any divine knowledge found in her, but only in her guide. I mean, and Nature's not divine. That I think, well, and what happens, I think, tragically, I mean, you know, because in some ways he's... This is all happening as all of these this this massive Protestant movement is is slowly unfolding, and it's still relatively new. You know, mm-hmm. I think you said to me one of the first times that that we went through this. You know, this is very medieval, right? I mean, this is something that yeah. a lot of the reasons why people love reading medieval theologians is because of this kind of work and this kind of writing. You know, this is 
this is a time where, you know, the people are not seeing a battle between science and and theology. No. Between right the natural sciences and the and the work of the church. No. This is some this is a time when if you are a learned person, you see in a, the study of nature the fingerprints and handiwork of God. And the more you learn about the natural world, you the more you learn about God. And the more you learn about God, the more you learn about how you know, well-ordered things are yes, and, yes. and how much we can find God in creation. It's the two of them are supposed to be seen in, in harmony and, um, right. It's all connected to truth. And, you know, it's something that we, you know, if you follow the arguments of the church, uh, you know, things happen in the following centuries where people start to see a, a, a clear division between, scientific learning and theological learning and the the workings of learning of the church and and they almost become opponents but that's not so in this time and i'd argue that's not so in in your thoughts and my thoughts i mean i see i love the scientific discovery and you know the the all of the things that we're learning today about the the nature of creation is is wondrous and amazing and i don't see them in, in opposition at all um you know Right. The, uh, I mean, now we make more of a distinction about the ways that we know these things, whether it's scientific method or it's through a more intuitive or contemplative perception of things. But they're all, I think you and I agree, they, these are all part of one epistemological spectrum um, that, mm-hmm. that certainly historically, culturally, all the rest, people have sought to divide to say only one part of the spectrum gives you real access to truth um, yes but um, that's not that's not hooker's worldview at all no and it's not ours I mean there's a reason why you know we keep saying you know this text is relevant you know I mean I'm not I'm not necessarily invested in hooker's scientific hmm. analysis yeah. of the natural yeah. world but I still think that he he has something to teach about how human beings, how we order ourselves as a society and as a church, I think we can learn from him. Right, and eventually this is all going to come down to, uh, you know, he has to distinguish between these these kinds of laws because there are different ways of regulating the church and society and so forth. And if you confuse what mm-hmm. sort of law you're working from, you're going to make some unfortunate uh, mistakes. I mean, and, and uh, you know, he's obviously he doesn't. He doesn't know anything about quantum physics that say, you know, there could be potentially, um, you know, infinite numbers of universes or something like that. Um, but, you know, his point, well, the fact is that we live in one universe and one actual universe. And, and so his point about distinguishing about how things operate and according to what sorts of laws, that, that does make sense. Well, I mean, and we're living in a, in a modern world today where, you know, people are misunderstanding, you know, different kinds of freedom, right? Yes. You know, with the COVID, with, with COVID-19, like on one hand, I, my freedom has been really uh, limited as I am not allowed to do many things. Now I, I do not have the freedom, I think, just today, I, we're recording these, these episodes several weeks in advance, just today it was announced that if I'm in any kind of enclosed space, I am legally obligated to wear a mask, right? Yes. 
I, you know, I, on one hand, I'm, my freedom is limited and yet I have the freedom to know that when I go to into a store, everybody in that store is going to be wearing a mask and I'm much freer of being threatened by COVID-19. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> right. So, so on the one hand, like you've got, he's talking about the laws of nature, how material beings exist together, which includes viruses. And then, mm-hmm. then you've also got the laws of society, which say, you know, how do beings who have actual free choice exist together? We haven't got to that in his argument exactly. He, he said it's, he told us it's coming. Um, yeah. So, you know, having to wear a mask is one of those prudential judgments that beings with choice have to determine. And they look, I mean, one of the, one of the ways in which you have to make your judgment is by looking at, well... The laws of nature. You know, viruses will do what viruses do, whether you like it or not. You can't wish it away. Um, yep. Yep. And, and to just sort of declare that, yeah, and, and it's a miss, like you were saying, I, I forget your, your, your phrasing there, but, you know, it's a, uh, it's a profound mistake to elevate my decision <laughs> to be free and not wear a mask, right? Right. And uh, have that to collide, have that collide with uh, the natural order as of things. A, I'm as, just, a, I'm, as a certain Panglossian president to the south of us is inclined <laughs> to do, you know, yeah. kind of confuses yeah, at, his, at his peril. These confuses these different laws, right? Um, yes, that's exactly that's exactly it. He, there's a confusion of which law we should. Yes, exactly. Okay, let's 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 keep going here. No, I, let me make sure I've got it in the right place. Yes, um, since natural things which are not voluntary agents must necessarily obey certain laws, then as long as they remain as they are, they cannot help doing what they do. Their many workings are perfectly designed for the many different purposes they achieve. But though they do what is fitting, they know neither what they do nor why they do it. From this, we can see that everything they do in this way must be the result of some agent who knows, appoints, holds up, and even fashions it. Let me just pause here to say, isn't this, mm-hmm. this is the point we're just making, right? But viruses <laughs> do what viruses do, and um, mm-hmm. earthquakes do what earthquakes do, and all that. Oh, sorry. Anyway, I'll yeah. carry on. Fatu- no, but this is exactly it. They, fatu- they follow a very clear yeah. natural order of things that's easily predictable, and uh, we'd be wise to pay attention. Indeed. Yeah, that was... <laughs> yeah, we missed the point earlier on. He said, you know, the fact that we can't, you know, even with the closed examination, completely understand everything we perceive is to give us a certain measure of humility. <laughs> and that remains as yes. true today as it did in uh, Richard Hooker's day. Mm-hmm. So on he goes. He says, the way God does this is so far above us that we can no better imagine it with our reason than irrational creatures can understand how we arrange and determine our affairs. We only know that all things are made and ordered by the fixed purpose of divine understanding. This understanding gives them their different ways of working, and we call this wisdom God's providence. The ancients called this natural destiny. The law which we see carried out by natural agents is like a design in the mind of God himself. Executed by the spirit who creates and sustains every nature and natural agent as his instruments with which he works his own will and pleasure. Nature is nothing more than a tool, just as Dionysius affirmed when he saw a sudden disturbance of the world and said, either the god of nature suffers or the machine of the world is dissolved. That is, either God suffers impediment, being hindered by something greater than himself, or if that is impossible, then he must have determined to dissolve the workings of the world, since the execution of that law on which the world depends seemed to him to stand still. This workman, whose servant is nature, the only one in reality, the pagans imagined to be many, 
Jupiter in the sky, Juno in the air, Neptune in the water, Vesta or Ceres in the earth, Apollo in the sun, Diana in the wind, Aeolus and others in the winds. And indeed, they dreamt up as many guides of nature as there were different kinds of things in the natural world. They honored these things as if they had the power to act or refrain according to what each man deserved. To us, however, there is only one guide of all natural agents, both the creator and worker of all in all, alone blessed, adored, and honored by all forever and ever. Hmm. So, yes, God, God is so far beyond us that it's like my cat doesn't understand why I do the things I do. Um, yeah. we don't necessarily, we don't, from our perspective, we cannot understand everything, um, that's part of God's providence, but, uh, but it is, um, God who directs the order of things, but, but it doesn't mean God causes everything, um, but rather the laws by which things act are, uh, the, have their source in the one guide of all natural agents. Mm-hmm. It's very, I, it is very enchanting. I, I admit sometimes I, I'm envious of past centuries when people had such an mm. enchanted understanding mm-hmm, of things. Mm-hmm. You know, um, you know, I, I love teaching when, when I'm doing um, sort of a, I've, I've taught it a couple times now through with the youth internship program when I, I do a thing on uh, where we start reading Genesis from the beginning and I start to describe the, when he's describing the natural order of things, the way that they understood it. And it's funny that the same, in some ways, the same way that, uh, you know, people understood the workings of the world 2,000 years ago was the same as, you know, 400 years ago, you know, yes. where where there's this great dome in the sky and, and the sky is blue because on the other side of the sky is water. Yes. Right. Yes. And sometimes the dome opens and the water falls out, and there's these there are these sort of celestial um, creatures. Though that God has created these celestial creatures that follow a very specific set pattern across the, as they arc across the sky, and they almost possess a certain intelligence as they watch us. They are almost like eyes that are watching the world, and they possess a certain wisdom that, through astrological sciences, you can. If you, if you study the stars, they have something to teach you as they have been watching the world for, for an, un, you know, since the world has been made, right? It's, it's sort of very, it's beautiful and enchanted. Yes. And, the spirit creates ah, and sustains every nature and natural agent as his instruments. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. You know, whereas... I mean, I think our modern science has a modern, has a, has a kind of beauty too, but this is very... Uh, personal. Uh, very enchanted. Yes. Per- yes. Yes. No, there's just... And, and then this... Sorry. Yeah, go ahead. No, go ahead. Finish your thought. Yeah, no, but I was just thinking, and then this, the celestial heavens are just on the other side, mm-hmm. right? You know, and, and, and almost... He'll talk later on about the angels, the yes. order of the angels. I mean, there was this sense that there was a heavenly kingdom just on the other side, and they were... This heavenly kingdom was perfectly ordered, and... And perfect, you know, we were striving one day, perhaps our heavenly, our, our earthly realm could be in harmony with the heavenly city above, right? Yes. Uh, you know, and, and, and it's just, it's just over there. All of our churches are big arrows pointing up to this heavenly city. You know, it's, I don't know. It's, uh, 
I think it's so beautiful and so seductive um, that we still live in a world where people are like, you know, they're creationists and they're flat earthers, right? They're yearning. If only this was still the way we saw the world, you know. Indeed. Of course, now that that perspective is destructive and foolish, but, you know, from time to time, I think we can appreciate the ancient appeal. Well, he's going to wind up this particular second. It's great. You mentioned that, you know, we're going to get onto the law of angels, which probably seems a bit abstruse to uh, us in our disenchanted universe. Yeah. But um, he, he'll just, just to wrap up this section on sure. natural laws, he says, up to this point, we've been talking about natural agents taken and considered in themselves. However, we must also remember that just as each has a law which directs it to which directs it to best seek its own perfection and completion. So also, there is another law concerning how they must relate as parts of one body. This law binds them to serve one another's good and to prefer the good of the whole before their own particular interests. As we often see when natural agents forget their customary motions, heavy things sometimes going upward of their own accord and forsaking the earth, which is their natural resting place, just as if they had been commanded to surrender each its own private desire to fall, for the greater good of the rest of nature. What? Now, I couldn't, I'm not sure I got what example, his example here. I mean, I understand <laughs> saying that um, that in a, in a world of limits, it's created order, um, everything is interdependent, that's fine, but I, I don't see uh, how we often, we, how we often see natural agents forgetting their customary emotions. Heavy, heavy things sometimes going upward of their own accord. What is that? <laughs> All I can think yeah. of is, you know, I go back to volcanoes and I think if you, you know, some heavy stone which naturally would tend downward is blasted upward. Um, <laughs> Maybe he means I, like I, tornadoes and things, I, like hurricanes, tornadoes, I, sometimes heavy things I, going upward of their own accord. We. Natural agents forgetting their customary emotions. I, yes, it, it may be some kind of disastrous thing. Like, you know, winds normally don't destroy whole cities, or you know, or, or, or what yeah. have you. So maybe it, it, those are the the uh, the kinds of exceptions that he is talking about, in which it's not so evident that uh, created things are serving one another's good. Right, but, the, but yeah, I suppose you're saying, but but even though those kinds of strange events happen, we have earthquakes occasionally, or mm-hmm. but there's still this sort of a natural order of things. Yeah, I don't know. It's 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 um. I don't know. It's it's this this is this is a kind of chapter, and I think the next one is going to be just the same. Where it's it's hard to get kind of a direct yeah lesson yeah, to us yeah, today. Yeah. Right. It, it, in some sense, we're. I mean, we won't. Um, I, it's it'll be kind of fun to look in at this, how angels are ordered, but but you know <laughs> just remember that where we're going with all this is uh, is to help. How do I mean, and again, there's no one to one connection between you know how the Elizabethan Church was to function doesn't instantly translate in every detail to how contemporary churches to to operate, but. He's going to set out a series of arguments about 
you know, how you make distinctions about the kinds of decisions you have to make on what do you ground mm-hmm. your decision making. So, well, I mean, and, and, and this stuff where, where, where some of this stuff is, you know, it can become really relevant really fast. I mean, I, I just watched uh, the other night Hamilton, right? It's oh, yes. become available on Disney Plus. I watched it. You know, and one of the things that fascinates, I think it fascinates a lot of Canadians is watching Americans make arguments about, you know, laws and medical science and different things based on the writers of the writings of the founding fathers and things, documents like the Constitution and various, you know, and that's an example where you have, you know, you know, yes, there are these laws or these literal written laws that human beings have written down colliding with the laws of nature and it is helpful if you were to have a big long conversation about constitutional law to say well there are other laws governing this land right there mm-hmm. are these natural laws that that you know that that follows again with things like the coronavirus is there there's not just the written law there are other laws that our world follows yes. and we have to be mindful of them as we're interpreting written laws you know, it's, I mean, it's absolutely, it's the same thing in Canada, of course, with our own with our own laws. I always find it easier to see to, to you know look at other nations and the way they make decisions. It's, I find it so hard to yes, to see our own true. society and our own world through a critical lens. But but that's an example where you know this is this is a really important thing. You know, before we start thinking about the the written laws that we're going to be discussing and throwing up in the air and looking at very carefully, there are there are other laws that are at work all the time and they inform our our decisions daily. You know. Yes. It's useful. Well, let's see what he has. I've been here again. You mentioned. You want to go into the angels? Okay. Let's just see how long is it. Let's do it. Uh, At least we'll get started. Because as you said earlier, um, you know, he's still a medieval in many respects. And uh, it's not uncommon to find medieval theologians talking about angels. And so does. Oh, no. So does Richard. John Calvin does the same thing. Exactly. Oh yeah, and I remember when I, I took a course on John Calvin, and, and I, I recall uh, my professor uh, they 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 had a skip reading the angels section. Oh, did they? <laughs> yeah. So I'm kind of like, well, let's do it. Let's let's see what I was missing. Well, you know, it's it's it always strikes me as a bit funny that uh, <laughs> you know people who uh, you know don't hesitate to imagine little green men coming down and flying saucers seem to find the idea of angels so difficult. Um, but. Mm. Um, mm. So, he says, the law by which angels work. Chapter 4, the law by which angels work. But now, let us lift up our eyes from the footstool to the throne of God and leaving natural things. Let us consider for a space the state of heavenly and divine creatures. Angels are immaterial and rational spirits. The glorious inhabitants of the sacred palaces where there is nothing but light and blessed immortality. No cause for tears, discontentment, grief, or anxious passions. And where they dwell forever and ever, all is joy, tranquility, and peace. They are in number and order huge, mighty, and royal armies. Their obedience to the law given them by God Most High is such that when our Savior wanted to give us an idea of what we should pray and wish for on earth, he said that we should pray or wish for nothing more than that it would be with us as it is with them in heaven. God, who actively moves mere natural agents by setting them in motion, provokes rational creatures to action in a very different way, including his holy angels. Beholding the face of God, they all adore him in admiration of his great excellency, and enraptured with love for his beauty to eternally cleave forever to him. 
Their desire to resemble him in his goodness makes them tireless and insatiable in their desire to do all the good they can to God's creatures, but especially to the children of men. Looking down on us, they see a resemblance to themselves, just as looking to God above they see what both they and men resemble. Thus, far even the pagans have approached, so that Orpheus confesses that before thy burning throne the angels wait, much working, charged to do all things for men. And that mirror of human wisdom, Aristotle, has said that God moves angels to act in the same way as good and beautiful things stir the heart of man to action. Angels may therefore act in three ways. First, with the most wonderful love rising from the sight of the purity, glory, and beauty of the God who is visible only to spirits that are pure. Second, with adoration grounded on the proof of the greatness of God, on whom they see all other things depend. Third, with imitation, nourished by the presence of the perfect goodness of him who never ceases to fill heaven and earth with the treasures of his free and undeserved grace. Hmm. That's very beautiful. Mm -hmm. So just a a little word on angelology, just a little little reminder here that, you know, I mean, angels are at some level extremely popular these days, you know, kind of Rubens-like cherubs on greeting cards or fridge magnets and what have you. Um, Or you sometimes hear the kind of stuff about, uh, (coughs) you know, somebody, maybe especially a child, dies because God wanted another angel. That's not angels, according to Richard Hooker or the Christian tradition. (laughs) Angels are immaterial and rational spirits. Um, Pure intelligences. So I was... You know, there's. I don't think anybody ever actually debated how many angels can dance on the head of a pin, but I figure the answer must be presumably all of them, since they're immaterial. <laughs> but but you do get the sense that they would be dancing, because <laughs> uh, they they have all that that uh, acting out of love, uh, uh, love for God, out of adoration for God, desiring to imitate God. I mean, it's quite a a, a vision. I, of, I do. I do. Yes. Yeah. I, I do like that you have, have solved for once and for all in this podcast the answer to that question, how many angels can dance in the head of a pin. The answer is all of them. Well, I, they don't take, they don't take up any space, right? So They don't. They are immaterial. That is the correct answer to that, uh, that question. I, I, that's really funny. It's a, such a wonderful vision of, I mean, this is such a hopeful vision of, of the creation, that there's this whole order of beings who... Uh, First of all, delight yeah. in God, but so because they so delight in God, they want to do good to human beings. Um, well, and I was thinking about how, you know, in a lot of ways, I just wonder if angels, um, in some ways, satisfy sort of the deep yearning of each each generation, right? I mean, when I think about angels today, and, and where I often hear about about them, or how we sort of fantasize them mm-hmm. appearing in our own life, or, or or even just accounts, to be honest, even accounts that people have told to me. Um, quite seriously about about being visited by angels yes. there are often moments of um intervening in moments mm. of sort of beauty mm. and mercy mm-hmm. where you know things are going like often in hospitals things are going a certain way and they're going very badly and it seems like there's only one way things are going to go and then they're visited by an angel of god sometimes it's a visit to say you know there's a there's an actual presence of god to say you know it's, you know, I love you, or it's time, 
you know, when things progress, but it feels different, right? Yes. The, the person might have died, but there's a sense of God has been with me through this. Yes. Um, or through a miraculous healing. Um, yeah. Even those, but it's it. Even those know, moments yeah. when people say, um, you know, I didn't know how I was going to get through that situation, but you know, somebody was there for me. That would be, you know, in. It would be an angel in for many people in, in the past. Um, because yeah. oftentimes angels, you know, they're masters of disguise. You don't know it's an angel kind of until you think about it later on. Um, some have uh, entertained angels there by unawares, as the letter to the Hebrew yeah. says. Um, but yes, as you say, all of those moments of, well, I guess help is one of the frequent things. Mm-hmm. They're ministering spirits to help. Um, I, I'm thinking of, um, you know, M. Scott Peck, the uh, late psychiatrist and spiritual writer, The Road Less Traveled yes. and People of the Lie. I think it's on The Road Less Traveled. He uh, talks about, um, you know, he compares the fact, you know, things do go wrong in this world. There's no question about it. But it says, consider how many times things actually go right. <laughs> the kinds of things that mm-hmm. you were just talking about, where, you know, things are looking bleak, but there's a turn for the better. This he, Scott Peck says, this is this is angelic action. So we don't we're not obliged to think about, um, you know, kind of uh, Christmas pageant type little girls with tinsel and white robes, um, but forces unseen but nevertheless real, or that manifest in ways that we don't perceive because uh, most of us lack the. Uh, you know, sufficient red corpuscles of imaginative faith to perceive them. <laughs> well, and I, and I wonder about his time. I mean, mm. I, I mean, it's, so a lot of it's, you know, we're just kind of imagining and stereotyping and different things. But in a society where perhaps there was a yearning for justice and a just and well-ordered society when perhaps that wasn't always apparent and real in their, in their own, in his own time, in his own world, right? I mean, this, yes. you know, a lot of these authors and musicians and, and a lot of the relics of this time are so beautifully ordered, but I think the actual experience of people on a day-to-day, uh, and day-to-day was quite, I think this could be a really, quite a frightening time, at, sure. a violent time, you know? Sort of a Hobbesian, nasty, this, brutish, and short, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, you know, and, and I, I think there could be a sense of a yearning of, you know, just a glimpse that there is another world, that there's another way, that a glimpse of a world where things are fair and just and beautiful and, and um, you know, even words that we don't tend to use today, but like words like civilized, like there's a place where there's actual, actual civilization and it's real. Um, you know, I, I wonder if, if, if in his time that would be uh, an angelic moment. Yeah. You know? Well, maybe it kind of like... Um book of revelation uh you know all these extraordinary celestial goings on um this kind of sky theater of angels and demons and all all the rest um one way of reading it is that you know what you see depicted in this form is a way of giving you encouragement to 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 live life now with some measure of hope and grace. Yeah. Hmm. So we, you know, we might just press on with 
a yep. little bit Let's on the, um, the law, because he's going to talk about, we are talking about laws, so here, here's this little section on how angels are, what the law of the angels are, like how they're, how they're um, ordered. We must not only consider what angels are and do individually, but also what concerns them as they are linked into a single body among themselves and have fellowship with men. Considering angels individually, their law is that which the prophet David says, Praise ye him, all his angels. Psalm 148, verse 2. Considering them corporately, their law makes them an army, some in rank and degree above others. Considering them lastly as having that communion with us which the author of Hebrews recognizes, chapter 12, 22, and calls them our fellow servants, Revelation 22, 9. From this we see a third law, which binds them to the work of ministering. All these tasks they do with joy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, okay, I want to. They get praise to, God. That's very lovely. But they, I, they have their own uh, yeah. ranks and they serve us. They minister to us. So, nonetheless, some of these angels have fallen, and their fall ah. has come through the voluntary breach of that law, which demanded that they continue to exercise their high and admirable virtue. They never could have changed or desired to omit any part of their duty unless something had been able to turn their hearts from God and drawn them astray before they attained that high perfection of bliss which now prevents the elect angels from falling. They could never have preferred anything to God as long as they saw that it depended upon God, since God would have seemed infinitely better than anything else they would have seen. Anything beneath them was so obviously dependent on God that they could not see it otherwise. So the only way they could sin was by turning to reflect on themselves and their own sublimity, thus forgetting their subordination to God. Their dependence on him was drowned in this fantasy, and so their adoration, love, and imitation of God were interrupted. The fall of angels, therefore, was pride. Since their fall, they have been doing the exact opposite of the duties just described. They were dispersed, some in the air, some on the earth, some under the water, some among the minerals, dens, and caves under the earth. But by all means, they desire to bring about universal disobedience to the laws of God and as much as they can to destroy his works. The pagans honored these wicked spirits as gods, calling them infernal gods and seeing them in oracles, idols, household gods, and nymphs. There was no foul or wicked spirit which men did not somehow honor as God until the light appeared in the world and dissolved the works of the devil. This suffices for a description of angels. The next in order are men. (laughs) So... That's great. That is I mean, great. That almost, there's almost like a, a Tolkien-esque yeah. quality sure, to this, you know? It's, yeah, it's the loveliness of the prose is uh, quite extraordinary. So, just to, so he's saying, how could angels possibly have fallen? Um, since mm-hmm. how could they leave the vision of God except by inverting their gaze and turning upon themselves? In other words, he says, pride. Um, Mm-hmm. They could only the, the only way they could sin was by turning to reflect on themselves and their own sublimity. Yeah, that's cool. I mean, and that's the whole idea of Lucifer, yeah. right? Like the the, the know, light the, bearer. The, 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 yes. Yeah. But where are like where are these? This is a genuine question. Like, where are these texts from? Like, a lot. This isn't really in the Bible. No, it's not. Right? So, like, where... 
where do these where were they getting all this stuff from? This is a genuine question. That's I, a great question. Um, <laughs> I feel like I, I should I'm know it, but I my brains here. Uh, that's a long story. Um, well, my apologies to all those who know better about this than I do. Um, you know, the, in some ways, the, the Bible is fairly taciturn about angels. I mean, he's quoted a few instances. The book of Revelation is probably the, is undoubtedly the, the one that's the most um, replete with angels as anywhere that you can find in the scriptures. Um, but I say overall, it's kind of, the scriptures as a whole are a bit um, taciturn on the subject. But that doesn't mean that there wasn't a whole host of both uh, Jewish and Christian and angelology texts. Um, I mean, there are things that didn't make the canonical cut that, uh, you know, the various Enochs and Esdras and so forth that are just like angels are coming out of the woodwork. Um, okay. So I, I think there's a, there, so among other things, there is another line of speculation and storytelling and philosophizing about angels. Uh, that continues, um, and I suppose uh, it's bound up with the question of well, why do things go wrong? I mean, the, to the extent that the scriptures have anything about angels at all, um, some of them seem to be opposed to God. Um, so faith, like. Uh, Nature pours a vacuum, and it wants to understand why. So, uh, I mean, the, mm-hmm. he's here repeating uh, something that's been long since considered to be the explanation for that, that they, they, their pride. Um, that's, so that's, um, that's very yeah. interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's and it does seem like um, I mean, of course the. The Presbyterian, you know, because because we can't find discussions about angels in Scripture, the Presbyterians aren't really going to be particularly invested in this in this topic, right? I mean, you can find. I think I think it's a pretty common thing among Protestant articulations of Christianity that there's not a lot of stuff around angels at all. Um, yeah, you know. Yeah, I mean, I I think they take it for granted. Um, but, um, and then there's, um, you know, I, I'm trying to remember, I guess one of the big, um, most influential Christian uh, works on, you know, the whole hierarchy, you know, the various orders of angels and so forth is um, Pseudo-Dionysius the Areopagite. He's got that, his book on the, cel- on the celestial hierarchy. Uh-huh. Um, Maybe, we'll, 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 maybe we should list that one in the show notes. Sure. Well, just think of, um, you know, the hymn, uh, Ye Watchers and Ye Holy Ones, right? Seraphs, yes. cherubims, lead the praises, um, cry out dominions, princes, powers. All these things are, are come from Dionysius, the, the nine levels of spiritual beings. Sarah, I don't remember mm. them all. Seraphim, cherubim, thrones, angels, archangels, all that kind of thing. Um, so he's, um, I think he... He's responsible for uh, for a lot of the uh, speculation on angels. 
anyway, you know, he, I say, you know, he's sometimes known as pseudo Dionysius, the Areopagite. The idea is like he's some fifth or sixth century writer, but his works were attributed to the Dionysius, who uh, is a convert of Paul and his preaching on the Areopagus, Mars Hill in Athens. So, you know, they thought he was kind of an apostolic person and therefore accorded his works considerable authority. Ah, uh, makes sense. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. So I don't know. I mean, I think I think overall, yeah. And you just wonder too, like if there was a if there was a move from a deeply pagan society with you know polytheistic, you know, all of this sort of this just this assumption, for example, that there was some kind of a uh, god of the sea, god yes, of the air, yes. god of the moon and the sun, and and I can see there being a move from you know we have one god. But obviously there are, you know, sort of angelic presences. Other powers, so to speak. That yeah. Other powers, lower powers, you know, lower spirits that obviously that follow God's will. And then, of course, there are these, there are these, there are these lower gods that, that, are, um, that have, you know, infested the earth with sort of demonic, you know, these infernal gods, which obviously must also have been created by God who created all things. Therefore, they must be fallen angels yeah, because you know, he's saying you know, even even pagans thought there were sort of right. you know nefarious powers at work in the world. Um, okay, so so how do we wrap this up? We've been uh-huh, going now how for do we wrap this up? Well, just I guess we could just say he's. I mean, stay tuned, folks. The, the next one is the laws which determine human beings, and that's going to have its own subdivisions. You know, kind of who we are as in our creation and how we um, engage in society and how we how, how the order, how the life of the church is ordered. Uh, so he's been laying out some of the steps along the way to um, this uh, by de- describing the law, of, first of all, you know, the law of God and God's own self, the law of the mm-hmm. universe, the law of, that orders angels. It, the, if, if you were keen on the law of angels, um, You've had your shot at it now. There's no more on this. He's he's going to be getting to the, no. to the main part of his his concern, which is how do we make laws that govern? Um, what are the laws that govern and the ones that we have to determine for ourselves that govern life in human society and in the church? And that's where a lot of his creative work is going to be. I mean, yes. in a lot of ways, these these chapters are not particularly. Um, you know, this is pretty established stuff for for someone living in his time. You know, he would be articulating in his own articulate way yes. things that most most people would agree with. Yes, I think the last the last couple the last few chapters. Cool. All right, all right, Kevin, thank, thank you, thank you, Jeff, and thank you, Richard Hooker. Thank you, Richard welcome, Hooker. Welcome and we'll, back uh, to you we'll next. Talk to you all next. Very week. good. Bye now.